Welcome to our 58th lesson in the book of Revelation, and I've entitled it The Fourth Trumpet, Diminished Vision, and we'll be looking at Revelations chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So, let us go there and read them now. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a vulture crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Whoa, 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 to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so what is happening here is we are going to be making a significant transition, not only in the trumpets, but in the entire book of Revelation. I'm not saying this is the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, but we are making a transition from that which was warning us of the results of our sins, that would have been the seals, and alerting us to the coming accountability or judgments, which is what the trumpets are doing. But now, after this, and, and trumpet four is really the transition, we will then start to see the spiritual effects of our sin. And not just our sin, but what it attracts. See, when you sin, you're like a beacon. And the more that you hug that sin, the brighter, or literally, I should say, darker, the dark light within you shines, attracting more attention from the demonic forces at work around you that swirl around you constantly. <clears throat> this is not to be confused with the force, the light force, the dark force, the Star Wars force. That's like Harry Potter magic. That's all that is that you can control it. You really do not control it. It doesn't work to your advantage at all. This is what Christ wants to warn you about. What it does do, it increases, if we were to put it in psychological terms, it increases your self-actualization. If we were to put it in, in clinical psychological terms, it makes you more of a sociopath until you become a psychopath. And we see that more and more in everyday people around us. But also we see it in the crescendo of world events. As things wax worse and worse, just as Christ told us they would. And so, we're going to do a brief review of the first three trumpets. It's impossible to be complete in each lesson because they're already long enough and I feel like I'm just hitting the high points. And I'm trying to give you a complete thought while we are going through these. And there are times I will go back and add more detail to round it out even more. But these lessons would, if I was to make them as complete as I possibly could, it would be two or three hours long. And, and that is just not practical. But I do make them as long as I feel they need to be, to be coherent. You know, if I made it like 15 minutes and put it into bite-sized pieces, they would not make a lot of sense and you'd still have to string them together. And with a week in between lessons, 
you would, by the time you got to the end of that coherent thought, you would have forgotten the beginning. That's how most people are. And so I understand that they are about an hour, hour and a half long. And I do encourage you to pause and come back to it so that you don't do it in one sitting, but you, you can actually break the lesson up into several parts throughout the week. So you're constantly getting an influx in God's Word as you're going along and are able to meditate upon that section that you've just heard and then come back to it. Look up the verses. Study them out. Meditate on them. Search the scriptures. Now, each of the previous trumpets have addressed each of the categories of ancient understanding of empirical physical creation. And there's earth, water, fire, air. Well, the first trumpet was earth. The second and third trumpets are water. And why are they separated? Because in creation, the waters were separated. In fact, the Hebrew word for heaven is shamayim, which is a duality, which shows separated waters. Then you have air, the firmament, the heavens, the atmosphere. And that's what we're looking at today. But fire <clears throat> is present in all three, all four trumpets. It was present in active forms in the first three trumpets, the burning mountain, the fiery star, the burning grass and trees. But here it's in a passive form. We see the sun. The sun is affected, but we see it. Its light is diminished. And the heavenly bodies are also presented in the same order as in the creation account, Genesis 1, 16 through 19. We have the sun, we have the moon, we have the heavenly bodies that are given for times and their appointed times or seasons, as they say in the King James. Heavenly bodies are given as markers of time, day, which is the earth rotation on its orbit in relationship to the sun. And that's how we mark our days, 24 hours. The month in ancient times was a lunar month. Only under Catholicism in the medieval period did we transition to a solar year. And then it, the month is also marked out by a rotation of the moon. So every 28 days, it makes a complete orbit around the earth. And of course, the year is solar. It's the earth's rotation around the sun. But they also function as markers of cycles. The uh, Nile floods were marked by the rise of, I believe, Cirrus in the night sky just before dawn. That's when they knew, hey, the floods are coming. Get ready. Clean up the irrigation ditches. Get ready to plant. Sunspots form an 11-year cycle. We tend to ignore it. It used to be more relevant because when you had over-the-air or open-air broadcasting of radio and later television, the sunspots would affect your reception. 
especially over shortwave or AM. For those of us who weren't doing shortwave, but were doing AM radio listening. Today with digital television and radio signals, that tends to not be as big a factor as it used to be. But it will. Trust me, it will. When the sun micronovas, as the sun enters these grand solar minimums and maximums, it will make a difference. And trust me, these are longer cycles and they are predictive of even greater climatic cycles of the sun. And I would uh, have you go listen to Suspicious Observers, both on YouTube and, and in their, go to their site and watch their videos. I don't subscribe to everything they say. They have an evolutionary viewpoint. They, they are not a Christian group, thus uh, you have to learn to filter out the, that which is applicable, that which they can actually forensically account for, as opposed to that which they then predicate back in time, predict backwards, reason backwards, based upon their philosophical, evolutionary, non-God viewpoint. In other words, we, we would filter that part out. But they do give us in a daily accounting of sun activity and how it affects climate on the earth. It is the single biggest source of climate change ever because it is the biggest single source of energy impacting the earth. Not the only source, but the biggest source. And finally, heavenly bodies denote biblical signs in appointed prophetic times. We see this at work in, in the Pentateuch. We see it at work in the book of, of uh, Joshua and Judges. Ancient man knew this. Even medieval people knew this. It's only modern man that doesn't know this. Only we're going to relearn it. God has already been flexing this aspect, like in the Carrington effect. And remember, up to this point in time, revelations for us in our study has been as much about science as it is about Scripture. The effects that we've seen are not just miraculous, out of the blue, God waved his wand and boom, it happened. No, God could do that. Not wave his wand, obviously, but when God works spiritually, it has physical events. If he does so on a cyclic basis, then we can measure it, prepare for it, look at it. And it should always point us back to God. See, this notion that science and religion are not compatible, true religion, true faith, is a fallacy. Science is not compatible with works-based religions, works-based philosophies, because these have inherent contradictions. They are incoherent. And science will, in fact, reveal their incoherency. But science, being measurability and repeatability, will always point back to Christ, who is the author of all creation. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
So all of this should be pointing us back to Christ. Romans 1, 18 through 20, 18 through 21. And man's rejection of that and building his worldviews, either ignoring God or in direct opposition to Christ, has to then ignore his own science. And of course, this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 1, 18 through 28. 18 through 32 says, we even all join together in our, our little cliques, our little societies, our little cultures, our little family groups, so that we can all agree to ignore Christ. And then we war against each other to determine who's ungodly, asabea, cultural, societal truths are more powerful or more correct when none of them are correct. And they all display weakness. And the more strength that you display, the more you announce your weakness. And so we see here in Revelations that Christ chastens the people. Well, in the Gospels, he chastened the people for knowing the seasons. Let's turn to Matthew 16, 1 through 3. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. They always wanted a sign. They always wanted a miracle. They didn't believe him. Even when he, he gave miracles, they didn't believe him. Because miracles do not change behavior. We're going to see here throughout Revelation, people's behaviors are not changed by what they are experiencing. And the prophecies in the Old Testament did not change the outcome. That is not how the gospel works. Gospel works when God changes you. You cannot change you. I knew I was lost from the time I was 13, 14 years old. I studied the Bible. I studied psychology. I studied sex. I studied, I went to many things to fill that void, to, to, to heal myself. And it just got worse and worse and worse. Because going to the Bible for me at that time was workspaced. I knew the gospel. I could tell you the gospel. I could tell you the four steps. I could tell you the five steps. I could tell you whatever. I would enumerate the Romans road. I could do all that. But I wasn't saved. You cannot change yourself. It is not an intellectual exercise. The only thing you do with an intellectual exercise is fool yourself. It is God who comes to change you. And so Christ answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. People have had the book of Revelation for two millennia, almost. Well, over now. 
and it doesn't change behavior. Oh, they want to announce the end of the world. They want to run around and find Antichrist. They want to run around and be the first to say, hey, I found this. It's coming. Get ready. Let's all go to the mountaintop and wait. But none of them. None of them talked about the gospel, how to be saved, how to wait, how to take the gospel out into the world, preparing the world. Because that is what modern times are. It's a time of preparation for Christ's return. That's why it is called the last days ever since Christ first came. The latter days, the last days, whatever terminology you want to use, the end times. Because nothing remains to be done except for Christ to return. He is just gathering out those he foreknew. And he's doing it among the Gentiles primarily. But at some point he will, and we have seen this already in Revelation, call forth his people. Now his people from the Old Testament, just to denote a difference between his people of the New Covenant, which is us. But we are not in opposition. He needs to bring those whom he has called into the new covenant which they had rejected. So the fourth trumpet is the result of the first three trumpets. And remember, as I alluded to earlier, Revelation so far has been a science study. And I included a, a slide on the graphic here showing that where we see the effects of the sun as it impacts the earth with the CMEs and the corona mass ejections and, and the solar flares pouring out energy and the Carrington effect being a a foreshadowing of just what is going to be coming and all this occurring as the, the sun does a micronova and, and the continents, tectonic plates start shifting back to form another Pangaea, another one continent rather than separate distinct continents that we have known throughout this second age. And these first three trumpets have alerted man to the coming judgment. Now, this progression has been given in the Jewish religious calendar or festival calendar. What we're going through now is what we would call Rosh Hashanah or the festival of trumpets. And then you have 10 days to ponder repentance, 10 days to prepare your hearts. And then you have Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And then they would have their religious presentation on that. And there are some that... Uh, there is the two goats, and one is sent off into the wilderness to fend for itself. And of course, a single goat sent into the wilderness is not going to survive very long. And the other one is sacrifice, because Christ was sacrificed as sin for sinners, even though he was sinless. But there are many that are just cast off into the wilderness. And here we are seeing those who are cast off to go into the wilderness because 
they have ignored the warnings of the seals. They are ignoring the trumpets. Remember, after the seals, of the first six seals, they just said, rocks fall on us and hide us from God. Hide us from the face of him who comes. Hide us, for we can't endure his wrath. That's not repentance. They weren't repenting. They were moaning that they needed to hide, but there's no place to really hide, but they won't change. They weren't going to change. They couldn't change themselves, but neither did they repent. And we're going to see later on, they still won't repent. And so Christ turns up the heat. That's what he's going to do in the next three trumpets. So the first three trumpets, all of these trumpets, basically Arash Hashanah, festival of trumpets, warning of what is coming, the day of atonement, the day of judgment. Just as Christ showed. Now, these are the fall festivals, the spring festivals, where you had the unleavened bread. Then you had the Passover. Then you had the Pentecost, which denoted that age of grace, that age of church age, or the age of first fruits, as I call it, which we've been undergoing ever since. And it occurs and continues until you have the Rosh Hashanah, the blast of the, the trumpets. And that's what we're all waiting for. The Jews, the true Jews, who don't know who they are, are waiting to hear that call. But the true Christians, we're also waiting to hear that call. We will be called out. The true Jews will be called out of obscurity into his grace and take forth the true gospel. And we've seen that in the book of Revelation. We've talked about this. These first three trumpets, as we've seen, as we've talked about, struck the earth, struck the oceans, which is the seat of, depicts sin or the loss, struck the fresh water, which is the saved who are on earth. The fresh water where you come to get the gospel. Well, it's being poisoned. It's being poisoned by their empty philosophies. It's being poisoned by their false religions. It's being poisoned because they would rather die than allow the truth. They would rather die in their sin rather than repent. And so were we of that mind until Christ dragged us kicking and screaming into his light, into his salvation. But this fourth trumpet results from the physical effects of the preceding three trumpets and the other events, such as the tectonic plate shifting with its concomitant volcanic and earthquake activities. And, and the disruption of the winds and the tides, which means you disrupt the weather. And so you have this tremendous debris that's been thrown into the atmosphere, especially the stratosphere, where it just floats up there, lingers for months and months and months. And it not only by the very amount of it begins to block the light reaching us from the, the sun and the moon, But also, 
the it dims it and and it color sh shifts it more toward the red, the infrared. Dims the light and reduces the heat reaching the earth, resulting in decreased temperatures, crop failures, and dimming of lights, i.e. the days. But also, because of the earth's weakened magnetic field and the sun's weakened magnetic field itself, because of the effects of this micronova, uh, we have a greater, much greater influx of the galactic winds just pouring in. That's also increasing the volcanic and earthquake activity. And the more volcanic activity you have, the more you have cloud formation always. And because of the incoming galactic winds, the increase in them interacting with the water vapor and oxygen in the upper atmosphere, and it has greater cloud formations. We have greater rains. That's why in Noah's Cataclysm, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. That was an accident. Other than God saying, okay, I'm gonna wait my one and we're just gonna have it rain for 40 days because I wanted to. That didn't cause the floods, just so you know. That was a side effect of the sun's first micronova that impacted the atmosphere and, and caused these tremendous changes that broke Pangaea, the one continent up, into multiple continents as they moved away from each other. Also, because of the increasing Galactic winds, solar winds hitting the atmosphere, we have tremendous increase in the Borealis-like effect, both in the north and in the south. And the more increase in, in uh, energy that hits the Earth, the greater the color shift, and it also shifts toward the red. They recorded this in the Carrington effect in 1858, 59, that uh, they saw the, the atmosphere at night shine red as far south as what? Cuba, Jamaica, South Carolina. So a decrease in one-third signals a warning in line with the trumpets alerting man to repent as judgment approaches. So God is not going to be bring complete darkness. He's not going to dim the light completely from the sun and the moon and stars and so forth. He's going to leave these as signs and as signposts. Remember, they tell us that God exists. The heavens declare the glory of God in the Old Testament. And Paul tells us in the New Testament that what can be known of God can be seen, and it's seen when you look up into the night sky. The Bible is internally consistent and coherent with itself. This decrease in physical light mirrors the decrease in spiritual vision and awareness. Man rejects the scripture. Man does not want to see the Bible. Man does not want to read the Bible. And today, it's changed in my own lifetime. You know, back in the 50s and 60s, most people had a working knowledge of the Bible. They knew they had been to church or Sunday school, even if they had been saved. They knew about the, the Bible stories. They knew about they had movies, popular mainline movies about Sam, Samson and Delilah, David and Bathsheba, Moses, the Ten Commandments. These were tremendous blockbusters. You don't have a blockbuster unless you have a lot of people who want to come and see it. Now, they didn't see it to get saved. They didn't see it to get the message. Not much of a message. It's more like 
love stories and miracles in action, but it was still able to reach a lot of people because a lot of people were familiar with the stories, not today. Today, you talk to people, they don't know hardly anything about the Bible, even those that have gone to church all their lives. They're more interested in the ethereal, the philosophy, if even that much, if even that much. But as far as what the Bible actually says in black and white, they can't tell you much. And even those that you've taught over the decades aren't that interested. Question. I, and I don't mind people questioning the scriptures as long as they're questioning it to look for an answer. God says, come, let us reason together. He wants you to test the validity of his word. It's not blind obedience. It's obedience based out of testing. Knowing that you can put your weight on it. That it will hold. And we do test. So man walks in partial darkness since Christ's staros and ascension. talks about that in Matthew 25, 13 and John 9, 1 through 5. Christ says the night is coming. Well, he ascended and the night's here. And even lost man acknowledges this in his history when he calls the period from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D. <clears throat> or BCE or whatever he wants to call it, uh, the Dark Ages. It's dark because the light of the scriptures was overshadowed by the tyranny of religion. And not just in the Western world, but also in the Eastern world. And we still live with both forms of that today. And refusing to repent will bring complete darkness and worse conditions. And we're going to see this in Revelation. When we get to the vile. Vile. Not vile because they're terrible, but vile because it's a glass vial that is being poured out. And Christ gives them up to the consequences of their sin. This is pretty much what is happening throughout Revelation until he returns. He's just allowing mankind to enjoy the consequences of a sin. And the more that man sins corporately, the more God allows or pulls back his control so that man can exercise his control. You want to be as God's? Well, to be as God's means you got to control stuff around you. You got to control nature. You have to control the wind influences and the sun influences and so on and so forth. And the more man realizes or is forced to realize that man doesn't control good because man is ignorant. It's beyond our ability to understand. We are empirical beings. And so this one-third is just warning, which we've talked about before. That characterizes the first four trumpets. These are warnings. Worse is coming. And worst is coming 
not directly in the physical, empirical realm, but worse is coming in the non-empirical realm first. And this is now transitioning. This transition is heralded by this vulture flying in the sky. Now we're going to look up at the noonday sky and see a vulture out there screaming? Probably not. Once again, we're transitioning into prophetic language. And so this is a, a spiritual utterance here. This is to let us know that henceforth what we're going to see and I use that euphemistically, or experience, is going to be spiritual in nature in the next three trumpets. It's going to have physical effects later on, obviously. But it begins in the non-empirical, in the spiritual realm. And it's heralded by this vulture. Now, the Greek and Hebrew words for eagle are the same words for any large bird of prey or carrion eater, vulture, and you have to get it from contacts. So I chose to use the word vulture here, English word vulture, is because it is the vulture that are the carrion eaters. It is announcing what is going to be the end, end point of all who sin, their physical bodies. When Christ returns, he's going to speak a word. And instantly their souls will be transported out of their bodies. Their bodies will just drop, will liquefy. And be food for the carrion eaters. We're going to see the angel call forth the birds for a feast. Because the birds can come from all over the world. And they will. Now, there are going to be other carrion eaters because almost all uh, carnivores will eat carrion. I mean, a free meal is a free meal for them. We're supposed to be more particular. And so this, this vulture is flying in the sky telling us Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, just as in English, the word woe is a onomatopoeia. It's just a cry of anguish. It just sounds like what it is. Oh, whoa, anguish. Well, that's what it sounds like in the Greek, too. Oi, oi. Or in the Hebrew, oi. Ahoy! It's this cry of anguish. And three is the number of completion. And it would be complete anguish. The more that man entrenches himself in his sin, in his sinful philosophies, the more he ignores the truth that is confronting him in these seals and early trumpet judgments, the more he, he rejects the scripture and kills those who embrace the scripture. And they will be killing him. Because even Christendom is the most persecuted religion in the world today. I would say Christians, Christendom even carrying the label, whether you're actually a true believer or not, is enough to get you killed in many parts of the world today. But then it will be much worse. And thus while man looks to the sun for life, there won't be life. There will only be the death that is coming the reward, the end point of death for his sin. 
He looks for hope, but won't find any except in Christ, but he has rejected the scriptures. He's killing off those who are proclaiming the scriptures, which we have already seen, those under the altar. And this transitions from primarily physical effects to spiritual effects, affecting man and earth. Now, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, explains this in a, a thumbnail sketch, that as the end times proceeds, the influence of the Holy Spirit is slowly diminishing, pulling back, so that man can enjoy more of the effects of his own sinfulness. Which is resulting in increasing violence and degradation and death and despair and, and, and reliance on, on drugs and whatever to numb the mind, to numb the brain, to deal with the despair and hopelessness. Because it should wake them up, but it doesn't. It doesn't wake us up. It doesn't make us turn to Christ as a group. It makes us hate Christ. We might as well be the ones crying out for the rocks to fall upon us. Now there are some that will go sit in lost churches and learn about the loving Jesus and how we all ought to be loving and how we all ought to be giving. But you can't translate that into actual practice because that's works. It's not about being good so that Christ will then choose you because you're so good. That's not how the gospel works. Christ chooses you because you're sinful. Then that changed mind wants to live according to Christ. And those works start flowing from you naturally. You see, man has been dabbling in sin. Being protected from its full effects by the Holy Spirit. Remember that influence of the Holy Spirit has been restraining evil, but slowly has been withdrawing. But in our time, it's being withdrawn faster as, we, as the end approaches. Now, I'm not saying the end is approaching in my lifetime. I'm not saying it's approaching in, in 10 years, 20 years, who knows? But it is approaching. And we see societies becoming more and more degraded, embracing more and more degradation, wallowing in more and more filth, and embracing it, and excusing it, even to excusing family members. Rather than choosing Christ. Ignoring the Gospels. Knowing Christ's warning. And rather than hunkering down with those that are believers, they continue to hunker down with each other, excusing each other, which should be warning them and telling them a lot about what they really believe, about the true condition of their heart. It shows, in fact, that they love sin. Even though, like children, they have been protected from the majority of its full corrosive destructive effects, but no more. Now, they will begin to face its full cor corrosive destructive effects, both 
in themselves, but also in creation around them. Because as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, all creation is affected by man's sin. Man wants to be as God. God means controlling nature. So you better get busy and control it. Well, you can't even define what energy is. And you make it up as you go along anyway, which just shows the high degree of our ignorance and our rebelliousness in refusing to admit we don't have a clue. We need God. And so the Bible is a warning. Darkness and woe. The Old Testament had progressively warned man of approaching judgment in its appointed time. That is really one of the crux of Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3. Write it down, make it plain. Yeah. He's speaking specifically in the near view of the coming Babylonian cactus. But in the far view, and most prophecy, prophetic utterances have a near view and a far view. The far view is revelation. Write it down, make it plain, so that they who run can read it. And Christ talks about this in Matthew 23, 24, 25. And he says, when you see these things occurring, run. Run for the mountains. Get out of Dodge. Don't wait. Do it now. And take the book with you. You're going to need to read it. And you're going to need to read it a lot. Now the false Jews ignored its message, culminating in choosing Christ as the Paschal Lamb, with few applying his blood to their lives. He was a high priest who was to choose the Passover lamb to be sacrificed in the temple. And he, he did. In Matthew 26, 63 through 68, the high priest chose Christ. And the Sanhedrin governing body went along with him. And they turned it over to the Romans and Pilate didn't believe it, but for expedience's sake, he went along also. The 1 Corinthians 5.7 says that Christ is the Passover lamb. The darkness, the day of the Lord is darkness. Unrepentant face accountability, outwardly indicated by creation being affected. Isaiah 13, 9 through 13. Romans 8, 20 through 22. Day of the Lord is darkness. Man seeks refuge in that which is revealed to be treacherous. There's no hiding from Christ. You go to those areas you think are safe, they're not safe. Amos 5, 18 through 20. As if a man ran into a house to escape the danger outside, but there's danger inside. And he put his hand in a crack to steady himself, and a snake bit him. That's what the message in Amos is. There is no safe place to hide. The day of the Lord is darkness. It comes in its appointed time, filling one's cup with destruction, degradation, and violence. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. Whoa! Sinners bring judgment on themselves by ignoring Christ's offer of salvation. Isaiah 3, 8 through 11. Sinners lie to themselves via empty worldviews and vain philosophies building on sand rather than the rock. Ezekiel 13, 3 through 16. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. And remember, Christ is that rock that followed them. According to Paul. Everything else in the world is sinking sand. Even the bedrock that man believes is solid rock is shifting, is changing, is moving visibly. There's only one solid rock. 
That is the gospel. It's the beginning of the reaping. Segways from warnings to reaping the consequences of sin implied in this transition from the fourth to the fifth trumpets. Hence the vulture rather than the eagle announces the woes. Their bodies will be food for birds, carrion eaters. Ezekiel 39, 17 through 24, Revelation 19, 17 through 19. The Bible warns whatever one sows in life is what one will reap in life and eternity. Believers should not despair. And Psalm 73 and Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Now let's go to Psalm 73. And so we find here the psalmist lamenting that sinners are getting rich and fat and don't have a care in the world and don't care who knows that they hate God and don't care about God. And, and, and uh, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long have I been stricken and rebuked every morning. But when I thought how to understand this, how he saw things going in the world around him, it seemed to him a worrisome task. He says, why bother? Why not just join them? Why not just become like them? He did what Habakkuk did. See, Habakkuk was confronted <clears throat> by God. He was appalled at God's answer. See, he whined about the Jews. Habakkuk did. How can you stand us? We are so sinful. God said, I'm glad you brought that up. I have a plan. I'm going to bring the Babylonians in to chasten you guys. Habakkuk goes, what? They're worse than we are. How can you do this? How can you, being a good God, a pure God, a loving God, bring in people that are worse than us? I'm upset. But rather write a tirade against God. He went up on the wall and sat until God should teach him. He waited until God would give him an answer. He didn't go go to the scriptures and change them. He didn't go to the scriptures and redefine them. He didn't use allegory to explain away their sin or anything like that or redefine God. He waited. Because the just shall live by faith. And God came and told him, write it down. It's coming. Oh, they'll pay later because they refused to repent. Now, some did repent. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar? He got saved. Belshazzar did not. And even under the Persians, one got saved. Others did not. And thus is it always so. But we, we can get discouraged today. But we need to go to the scriptures. We need to wait till God shows us the why. The why is in the scripture. We just need to study it. We need to understand it. We need to embrace it. So it seemed a worrisome task to the psalmist till he went into the sanctuary of God. Then he discerned therein. He's not going to glorify himself and say, yes, serves you right. But he's going to understand what God is doing. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Flat 
unobstructed pass in flatteries. And you make them fall to ruin. God doesn't push them over the edge. He doesn't have to. He just gives them up. And sinners stampede to the edge of the cliff and over, like lemmings. They're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Then he makes a telling statement here. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast. In other words, I was in danger of falling back to my pre-salvation condition. Now, you're not going to lose the salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you come close, and I can attest to this. In my past, I had a crisis of faith. And for a decade or so, I went back. I fell away. I was his psalmist. And you do. That's what sinners do. They live like animals. Even in their best, they are still living like animals because they are not living as man whom God created walking with Christ. But God didn't let me stay there. And now I have learned this. I've come to this. And I read this a lot. The Bible warns what you sow in life, you reap in life in eternity. We should not despair. Biblical events are written for us to understand that rejection of Christ results in eternal death. Henceforth, revelation becomes much darker as Christ reveals the magnitude of man's stiff-necked sinfulness in refusing Christ's grace. Now, believers are not exempt by being clothed in Christ's righteousness. You're not exempt from evil. You're not exempt from bad things happening. In fact, a lot of them are, who get saved during the Revelation time period are going to be killed. Probably horribly. They're not escaping anything. And the Christians who were raptured out, what did they escape? They had to go through their own life consequences. Believers must realize that in their strength they fail, but in their weakness, Christ is magnified. This is the very definition of grace. This is what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 12, especially verses 9 and 10. That's why his thorn in the flesh was to teach him that he was not accomplishing anything. That's why he avoided the problem that Elijah got into. Elijah had to learn that the hard way. We need to learn this. We need to walk in this. Believers will eat the fruit of their deeds and be with Christ eternally in the new creation. Do not be deceived. These same influences swirl about us today as Christ calls man to repent on this day. Not today in Hebrews 4 or Hebrews 3. It's this day, this day before death comes. Because when death comes, you can no longer choose. Now you're called to account for those choices you already made. Christ has been putting events in your life to warn you so that you can make the right choice. But most do not. Bad things do not drive people to repentance. And fortunately for most people, it just makes them hate. And react in violence. Thus, violence begets violence.
And so we are making this transition. And we're going to be seeing now and having to look at the next two trumpets at least through spiritual eyes. And we need to make sure that we are solidly grounded in the scriptures so that we're letting scripture define scripture. So that we're not doing and arriving at these fantastical allegorical explanations that we can't support and we just kind of make them up as we go along. We never want to do that because that always leads to error. Thank you.